One of the things that I like to do that sounds incredibly morbid, maybe I'm not alone, I like to walk through graveyards uh, in the daytime, that is. It's not so pleasant at night, but in the daytime. And just look at names and tombstones and, and uh, you know, the dates are always fascinating. But I have a question for you this morning. Have you ever considered what would be your epitaph? An epitaph is the, uh, the word means a brief statement characterizing a deceased person. What would your epitaph be? I get a kick out of unique epitaphs. Here's a few of them. Near Union, Uniontown, Pennsylvania, here lies the body of Jonathan Blake. He stepped on the gas instead of the brake. In uh, Boot Hill Cemetery, Tombstone, Arizona, there's a gravestone that said, Here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44. No less, no more. Now, uh, a uh, tombstone of a preacher says, Gone to another meeting. <laughs> I can understand that one. <laughs> Got a kick out of that. In, a New England, in New England, a woman who is evidently either a big gossip or a big talker, this is what her gravestone said. Uh, says, beneath this side lies Annabelle Young, who on the 26th of May began to hold her tongue. In Wetumpka, Alabama, uh, Solomon Pease. Pease is not here, only the pod. Pease shelled out and went home to God. There's a lot of these. I enjoy reading these. And I'll give you one more. I don't know for sure where this came from, but... Uh, somebody had sent me a, a, a picture of a gravestone said died for not forwarding that email to 10 people I guess it's real okay so be careful epitaphs tell others about you they sum up something that you are something that you believe so what was Jesus epitaph if you had to write an epitaph for Jesus what would that be now, not, not uh, by the way, an epitaph for his life, not his grave, hallelujah. He doesn't need a grave, amen. Uh, he pulled out of there. Uh, he's the only person in history that could borrow a grave, a, a tomb. Uh, and then he pulled out three days later. But for his life, what would his epitaph be? If I had to pick one, I think I would go with the one given by Peter in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good who went about doing good. That's a great epitaph, isn't it? That's a great summation of Jesus. We've been reviewing the fruits of the Spirit in Jesus' life because the nine uh, aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, if we take those and apply them to our life, they're excellent uh, growth. Uh, to, well, they, you, you can use them to gauge your growth in your life, but these nine fruits of the Spirit. And after we had went through them, now we've been looking at the, how Jesus shows these fruits of the Spirit. <coughs> Today I want to look at the goodness of Jesus. We're going to look at two stories. They're given to John right back to back as if, and I really believe that this is something that we ought to do. We're going to do it today. Look at the story in comparison to one another because Jesus deals with two very, very different people in these chapters. So we're going to read some verses this morning. So if you look with me at chapter 3, verse number 1 to start with, and then we'll read a few verses out of chapter 4. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, 
Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, must be born again. That was Nicodemus. We'll talk about him in a minute. Then let's go over to chapter 4, verse number 4. And he must needs go through Samaria. Look at verse 7. There cometh a woman of Samaria to drink water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Look at verse 9. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him. He would have given thee living water. And saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of that water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And Jesus said unto her, Go call thy husband. And we'll read a few more verses as the time comes. But we're going to have a word of prayer now. Ask the Lord to read, uh, bless the reading of his word, and then we'll get right into the message. We thank you, Father, for the, for the uh, passages we can look at today. Lord, may we learn something from them that we can apply to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in these chapters, we see two people engaged, uh, that Jesus engaged in conversation. In chapter 3, Jesus received Nicodemus and talked to him about being born again. In chapter 4, Jesus initiated a conversation with a woman at the well and offered himself as living water for her. These two people could not be more different from one another. You have a man and a woman, a Jew and a Samaritan. You have a religious leader and a person with a shady past. You have an encounter at night and one in the middle of the day. While they were different, Jesus loved both of them. He received one and he pursued the other. There's much we can learn from both. Jesus received Nicodemus at night. He did not shame him. He didn't insist or yell at him and tell him, you know, what are you, are you embarrassed to be seen with me? Come back during the day when everybody can see what's going on. He didn't do that at all. Uh, he received him as he was. And uh, Jesus pursued the woman at the well, and he offered her grace despite all that he knew about her past. No one knows us as well, loves us as much as Jesus does. We see the goodness of Jesus all over these stories. I, want, I have three points today, and just to make Pastor Forsberg proud, proud I alliterated them. Okay? Um, you're going to see uh, what a master of the English language I am when I give you these three points. The three points are him, her, and him. Okay? They're alliterated. See that? Him, uh, Nicodemus, her, the woman, and him, Lord Jesus Christ. Let's start with him. In chapter 3, we see there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. In verse 10, it says, He was a ruler of the Jews and a master of Israel. These three titles speak of his party, his position, and the profession of Nicodemus. First, he was a Pharisee. Now, we probably have today a negative, for, for good reason, we have a negative view of Pharisees. And you might think mistakenly that in the time of Jesus, everybody hated these Pharisees who were hypocritical, uh, holier than thou, 
But that's not the case at all. Uh, they were very widely respected in that time as devout men of God. They studied the Bible for hours every day. They prayed two hours a day. They gave a tithe of all that they possessed. They, meticulous, they were meticulous about morality and, and living their life by very strict rules. In fact, there were not many Pharisees because there weren't many men that would make that kind of sacrifice. Those who did were held in high esteem. Now, the Pharisees were right in some points of their doctrine, but they made one big mistake that many people even make today. They externalized religion. This is the outward conformity to the law as the goal of one's existence. Uh, consequently, they were very opposed to Jesus because Jesus was not about rules and religion. He was about a relationship with himself and with the Lord. And so... <clears throat> no one was more bitterly opposed to Jesus and his ministry than were the Pharisees. Yet Nicodemus seems to be an exception. Uh, evidently, he's been watching Jesus. He doesn't have the same hatred that they do. And, and uh, the way that I kind of picture this going down in my mind is it's late at night. Uh, Jesus is maybe he's sitting by a fire or, or uh, uh, he's still awake. Some of the, Most of the disciples might be asleep or maybe there's a few sitting up with him. And off to his side, they hear a... Uh, noise as someone hesitantly approaches them and it's Nicodemus wanting to get some private time with Jesus this is the original Nick at night and uh, he was embarrassed to be seen with him this probably would be career suicide if, uh, if anybody saw him asking Jesus these questions yet the fact remains he risks his own position to come to Jesus this speaks of his personal need you see, being religious, friend, is never enough. Uh, he was a very religious man. Not only was he religious, he was a religious leader, yet it was not enough. He comes despite all of his religious activity. There's still an aching void in his heart. Could it be that maybe Jesus could fill that void? And so he comes to talk to him. He spoke of three things. First, he, the persuasion of Jesus. He says, we know. He didn't say, I know. He said, we know. This is a a little bit of a cowardly hesitation here. I didn't want to commit himself too much. Even today, uh, people talk of we in religion long before they talk of I in religion because weak faith strives to hide in the crowd. Nicodemus was convinced that Jesus was something special, but he did not have the courage to take a public stand. Uh, although he was convinced that Jesus is come from God, he said so. Secondly, he looked at the position of Jesus. He said, thou art a teacher. Now, the fact, what he said about Jesus being a teacher, this is true. Jesus Christ indeed was a teacher, and none better has ever existed. He was the best teacher that ever was. But Jesus Christ was more than one who was sent from God to teach. He was sent from God to save. Uh, it is a, not many people today recognize Jesus as a good teacher. In fact, that's not even a threat to many religions. A lot of of uh, Jesus, the people that deny Jesus as the Son of God are willing to look at him as a good teacher because that's no threat. But that is an inadequate recognition of him because Jesus' chief position is not of a teacher, it is of a Savior. That's why he came. Uh, many people only want a teacher, but we need more than education. We need enablement. It is salvation that we need, not just intelligence. It is, uh, we need a Savior, not a scholar. And by the way, <clears throat> there is no possible way that Jesus could have been just a good man or a teacher. There's no possible way. 
because he made some serious claims about himself. If he was not God, then he was a lunatic. And I mean no disrespect at all, but that's the case of it. If he's not the Son of God, then he was deranged because he said things about himself, and we know that he was what he said he was, but we can't look at him and say, well, he was just a good teacher because if he wasn't what he said he was, then he is the liar of the first order. Of course, many people think that about him today, mistakenly so. Then he talked about the proof of Jesus. No man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. The miracles that Jesus performed supported his claims of messiahship. Jesus did not come to heal people. He did not come to heal people from the sick. He didn't come to raise people from the dead. He did those miracles so that others might be, believe he was who he said he was. What he said was backed up by what he did. Remember the guy that came down through the roof? I love that. I, I call that uh, story the quartet that raised the roof. Uh, they came over, carried their friend to Jesus and took off the tiles of the roof, let him down, and, and Jesus looked at him and he said, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee, rise up and walk. Now, when people heard that, they flipped a gasket because who can forgive sins but God? Is he claiming to be God? But then he said, rise up and walk. You see... Uh, and he even asked him, which is easier, say thy sins are forgiven thee, or to say rise up and walk. Brother Corey and I can tell somebody rise up and walk, but they're not going to rise up and walk if they're crippled. We can do about it, amen? But Jesus could heal him, and that proved to them, hey, I can not only, can I heal him, but that proves that I have the power of being God to forgive his sin, all right? So his claims were backed up by his deeds. That's why he did miracles. Uh, so give Nicodemus credit for recognizing that these miracles said something special about Jesus. But Peter gave a better response uh, later in, Do in John 6, 68. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the, hast the words of eternal life. I like the fact that Peter, who had seen many, many miracles, did not mention the miracles, but he mentioned the message. He mentioned the words of Jesus, but uh, that what glued Peter to Christ was the fact that he had the words of eternal life. And Peter had it right. Praise God, today we don't have uh, miracles around every corner, but we do have the Word of God, don't we? And that's so much better, and Peter recognized that. So Jesus then responds. He spoke of his need. I like how Jesus talked to people because he didn't mess around. You like, uh, you ever know somebody who's a bush beater? I mean, everything they talk about is around the bush. They can't just come out directly and say it. They've got to worked the long way around to the conversation. It wasn't Jesus. He just called it out right like it was. So when Nicodemus finished that little speech, he said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must, verse 7, be born again. All classes of people need a new birth. The ye in this verse is referring to Nicodemus. Ye, <coughs> by the way, there's a reason for you and ye and thee and thou in the Bible it helps us to discern uh, ye is singular and you is plural. Uh, thee is singular. Thou is singular. And you is plural. It helps us to discern things in the Bible. A lot of people uh, read the King James. They don't like the these and thous, but that helps us to, to identify some things that Jesus is saying. I'll give you an example. Uh, when Jesus looked at Peter uh, and the disciples, he's talking to all of them, he said, Satan have desired to sift you like wheat. Talking to you, plural, the disciples. But I have chosen thee, talking to Peter, singular. That helps you to dis discern those. But that, that's beside the point. That's free. Anyway, so, but here he's talking to them, 
to Nicodemus say, you must be born again. We can understand a non-religious, wicked sinner needing to be born again. But here is a leader of the most religious sect that existed that day. And Jesus said, you, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. This is a shocking thing to say to somebody like Nicodemus. So religious people, non-religious people, rich people, poor people, respectable people, non-respectable people, all need to be born again. All need to be saved. Are you religious today, friend, but not born again? Religion will do nothing for you. You must be born again. That's what Jesus is talking about here. <coughs> now, Nicodemus <coughs> revealed his ignorance right away because he asks three foolish questions. Look at verse number four. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? This question shows the carnalizing the message. The word carnal simply means human the human way of looking at it. He says, how can a man be born a second time when he is old? Uh, Nicodemus missed the meaning of Jesus' message entirely. And then he asks again, can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? This showed contempt for the message. It was rhetorical. No man can enter his mother's womb and be born the second time. You'd have one upset mother. Amen? She was upset the first time. She'd be really upset the second time. Uh, in Nicodemus' mind... This idea was foolishness. It was ridiculous, and his comment showed it. Unbelief often mocks what it does not understand. You, you've had people, no doubt, if you've talked about the gospel or talked about the Bible to enough people, you've had people mock. In fact, in, in Acts, it talks about the people that they, uh, they ignored, they mocked, and some received. Some, some people will ignore, some will mock, some will receive. Uh, but many today will mock because of th what they don't understand. Nicodemus is an illustration of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man receiveth not the things of God, for it is foolishness unto him. They don't understand the things of the Bible. When the world mocks the gospel message, you remember that what Paul said, the preaching is to, uh, the cross is to them that perish foolishness. And yet that's exactly what wins them too, the foolishness of preaching. So we continue to do that. Now, the third question, he says, how can these things be? This question shows the conclusions about the message. Nicodemus basically says, this is not possible. In spite of the explanation of one of the greatest, or, or the greatest teacher of all time, Nicodemus does not get it. He did not understand that we enter God's family the same way we enter our physical family, by birth. This is very important for us to understand and recognize. This week, I got a call... Uh, most of you are aware of these Amish track that I, I was able to write a few years ago and, and I'm still shipping these different places and, and churches are handing them out. Well, I got a call from a guy in Pennsylvania this week that had seen this story and, and had some questions and, and he was really hung up on this once saved, always saved idea that, uh, that, well, I talk about it in there, but also, of course, the Bible talks about it a lot. And so he was confused about that and and we were talking for a while, and I used this passage to explain this to him. Because it's important for us to understand being born again, uh, understanding that principle, because if you are born into the family of God, like you are born into your physical family, can I tell you something? You can die, but you can never be unborn. That's important. You can die, but you can't be unborn. You could, uh, you know, even a baby, my brother, tragically, uh, my youngest brother, uh, uh, about 10 years ago, they had a, his wife had a child and she only lasted a very short while and, and passed, or he actually passed on 
into eternity as just a, as a newborn infant. And a uh, very sad time for them. Uh, but he, he was born. He existed. There's a record of him. He didn't live long. He died. He wasn't unborn. He has a name. We still remember him. He existed. Because when you're born, you can't be unborn. And you can't be unborn out of that family. That's why it's so important to understand this principle. And so when you're born into God's family, when I was a, a boy being raised, and I was uh, one of four brothers, I was by far the best one. Uh, and obedient, the kindest, always doing the right thing. <clears throat> but uh, I would get occasionally into trouble. My brother next to me is known as affectionately as the weasel. Uh, he would get me in trouble sometimes. And, and, uh, but I never had to worry ever that my dad said, hey, if you do this or you do that, you're out of the family. That never was a worry for me. And by the way, you know what? Even if he had said that, and even if he kicked me out and I had to move somewhere, I still would be his son. The benefits of the relationship would be gone. There would be no fellowship. There'd be no uh, glorious uh, result of that relationship. But I'd still be his son. Why? Because you can die, but you can't be unborn. I'm asking today, friend, are you born again? I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking if you went to church your whole life. I'm not asking if you read your Bible or if your family went to church. All of that, uh, that's not... That, that, see, Jesus put all that aside because Nicodemus could say yes to all that. Yet he said to him, you must be born again. And I ask you that question today, are you born again? It's so important for us to understand. So that's Nicodemus. Now let's talk about her. Moving into the next chapter, verse chapter number 4. Verse number 7 there says, Cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Now, actually, we need to take a step back because I love this verse in verse 4 where the Bible says he must needs go through Samaria. I'll show you why that's such a sweet verse. In Jesus' day, there were three regions stacked on top of each other. Uh, it was Galilee on the north, Samaria under Galilee, and Judea underneath Samaria. So if you were going to Galilee from Judea, the quickest and easiest route would be to go straight up through Samaria. That is not what Jews did, though. Uh, Jews and Samaritans, for that matter, if they wanted to go from, from Judea to Galilee, they would cross over the Jordan River into Perea, go up Perea past Samaria, and then cross back over the Jordan River into Galilee because that way they wouldn't have to go through Samaria because Samaria was dirty, filled with dirty people. They even called them dogs. They were half-breeds. They, uh, they wanted nothing to do with the Samaritan people. Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. It wasn't about a route. It's about a person. Isn't that cool? I love it. I love it that he, this was about an individual. And uh, so the must here, it's more than a direct route. It involved a planned encounter. And Jesus often throughout his ministry talks about musts when he is talking about what he has to do and what he wants to do. He says, I must preach the kingdom of God, Luke 4, 43. In John 9, 4, he says, I must work the works of him that sent me uh, while it is day. In Luke 9, 22, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. In John 3, 14, the Son of Man, must, uh, as, as Moses lifted a serpent in the wilderness, uh, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
I wonder if these, these same priorities characterize our days during our Christian life. Evaluating the Father's business, the Father's business above our personal to-do lists. Uh, witnessing and preaching the gospel, doing the will of the Father, cooperating with God's purpose in our suffering, lifting up Jesus in every aspect of our life. Is that how we live? That's how Jesus lived. So this is an unusual situation just for the fact that Jesus is a Jew having a conversation with this Samaritan woman. But the first thing he does, he talks about water. I love what Jesus, by the way, read through all of his, his conversations and his preaching. As a preacher, I love to analyze sermons and how people prepare and what they... But one of the most fascinating, well, the most fascinating person we can study his preaching is the Lord Jesus Christ. When he preached, it was simple. It was simple. There was nothing deep. There was, you can dig pretty deep in what he said. But I mean, he, he talked about dirt, seeds. You throw it on rocky ground and birds are going to come eat it. Everybody understands that. And then he applied these simple things. And here he's using water as he talks to her. He was tired and thirsty. He had, had a long uh, trip from Jerusalem. We can understand this. By the way, often in Scripture, <coughs> you can see both the human and the divine natures of Jesus Christ at the same time. Uh, he was asleep in the boat. That's his humanity. But he woke up and stilled the storm. That's his deity. Uh, he, was, he wept at Lazarus' grave. That's his humanity. But he raised him from the dead a few minutes later. That's his deity. Uh, but he did not get to the well and immediately pull some water up to drink. He waited on her because he wanted to ask her for that drink. He was going to use it to talk to her about himself. The woman's reaction was clear. How is it that thou asked this drink of me? This hasn't happened to her before. He's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, and he's asking her for water? This never happened before in her life. She had good reason for it, because Jews wouldn't eat with Samaritans. To speak to, to her, Jesus reached across a racial barrier, a cultural barrier, a moral barrier, and a gender barrier. All these things Jesus reached across just to talk to this woman. He used water to illustrate the gospel message. He called it living water. He, he said, I'll, I'll take water from you. And she uh, said something there. And he said, well, you know what? I could offer living water. You'd never thirst again. She showed some interest in the water Jesus was offering. Uh, she said, here, sir, Give me this water that I thirst not, neither come here to draw. She did just what Nicodemus did. She carnalized what he said. I'll take that water. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to drink water and never be thirsty again? You never have to, you never have to uh, uh, just make sure that you're not going to, um, not that you're not getting enough water. Something I worry about all the time, right? We, whether we're getting enough water, or we're, uh, especially during the heat and all that. It'd be nice to take a, Drink of water and never have to do it again. That's what she said. I don't have to come here and draw anymore. At this point, as she's listening to him, Jesus could have led her. I want you, don't want you to miss this. Jesus probably could have led her in the sinner's prayer. She was <coughs> listening and open. <clears throat> she said, give me the water. He could have said, okay, yes. I can put another notch on my belt. Say this prayer along with me. That's not what he did. It's something very important that he did. He brought her face to face with her sin. They've talked about the water. Now they talk about her wickedness. Look at verse 16. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. She had showed some interest in the water Jesus was offering, but now Jesus showed was, was using the conviction of sin to show her clearly 
her need of the gospel. Can I tell you this? Do not miss this fact, friend. The thirst for living water is not awakened in anyone unless they have an awareness of sin in their life. You've got to know your own condition. We have to recognize that we can't do it ourselves. We cannot earn our own way. You must convince the sick that they're sick before they're going to go to the doctor. Amen? You've got to convince the sinner of their sinfulness or they won't see their need for a Savior. It was not enough that she knew he was special. They needed to deal with her sin. Notice that Jesus demonstrates his goodness and his compassion here in the two orders he gave her. Look at this verse again. Go call thy husband and come hither. The first order was go. The second order was come. The first brought conviction. The second, uh, this ship brought up the problem of her immorality. But the second order shows compassion. In spite of her wickedness, in spite of her failure, Jesus still says, hey, come. Uh, he still offers her redemption. These two orders reveal both grace and truth. Truth for her conscience, grace for her heart. Go, but then you can come back. Come. Well, I love those two words. Isn't that good? The goodness of Jesus. Verse 17. This, this, is, this gets actually pretty hilarious here. The woman said, <clears throat> I have no husband. Now, I want you to see something. This lady was a talkative lady. You can see through the conversation here. And sinners like to cover up their sinfulness. Have you noticed that? You got kids? Anybody? Okay. Sinners like to cover up their sinfulness. Jelly all over the face. Oh, I haven't had a jelly. Oh, I'm innocent. Uh, but uh, she has been very talkative up to this point. Suddenly she becomes very closed-mouthed. Just for the purpose of illustration. I counted the words. And in verse 9, she says 27 words. Verse 11 to 12, she says 42 words. In verse 15, she uses 14 words. But when her sin came up, verse 17, she uses four words. We don't like to talk about our sin. We don't like to deal with that. Uh, covering our sin, by the way, will not benefit us. Proverbs 28, 13. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them will have mercy. Uh, we, we should not cover our sins. Confession of our sins, not covering them, is where divine mercy is. And by the way, we can't cover them anyway from an almighty God. He knows everything about us. The Bible says in Psalm 139, 2, Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it all together. They talk of water. They talk of her wickedness. Not leads her to worship. This, 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 this is hilarious. What happens next in this conversation? She changes the subject. You ever notice that people do that in uncomfortable situations? You're starting to talk about something that's not too comfortable for them, and they change the subject, bring something else totally up. A wife said to her husband, "You need to do more chores around the house." A husband says, "Can you change the subject?" She says, okay, more chores around the house need to be done by you. That's not what we're talking about. It's typical, it's typical for people to sidestep the issue, to change the subject when something uncomfortable comes up. And this is exactly what she's doing. She's being exposed, and so she says, hey, yeah, you know what, Jesus, I got a question. We worship here on this mountain, and you guys say we ought to worship in Jerusalem. What do you say about that? 
lady, that's not what we were talking about. But it, she changed that subject because she don't anything, anything but my sin. I want to talk about anything but my sin. That's how we are. We don't like to deal with our sin. This is like when you're witnessing to people. I don't know if you've ever <coughs> done this, but right in the middle of talking to somebody about their soul and about how they can't earn their way to heaven and showing them some verses. Hey, I've always wondered, where did Cain get his wife? Had not nothing to do with what we were talking about. But you start dealing with people's sin, I'll try to change the subject. By the way, the answer to that question is Cain's mom and his mother-in-law are the same person. You figure that out. Uh, but for the goodness of Jesus here, this woman would have sealed her eternity in hell. But Jesus is good. And Jesus loves us. And he continues with her. Uh, he, by evading her problem of sinfulness. But Jesus brings her back on point, And he does so by telling her about the who, not the where. Where should we ought to worship, she says. And he answered, not I'm paraphrasing, but instead of telling you where, let me tell you who you ought to worship, lady. That's more important. The who is more important than the where. And the Samaritans didn't know who they worship. It's not the place of worship that condemns a man. Rather, the ignorance of whom he should worship that condemns him. Jesus took her from this meaningless distraction uh, to the who of the gospel. He said in verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him <coughs> in spirit and in truth. Notice here's another must, by the way. The who of the gospel is much more important than the where, and that brings us to him. There's some striking similarities between these two stories that shows us the goodness of Jesus. Both times, Jesus engages in a conversation with an individual. By the way, totally different message. I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail because there's not much meat on rabbits. But uh, there, There's an interesting thing if you study it about Jesus being an individual type of say. I mean, he, he dealt with individuals a lot. Yes, he had crowds, but he often dealt with individuals. He cared about people. That's a great example for us. Nicodemus comes alone and comes to Jesus at night. The Samaritan woman is alone when she visits the well because of the disapproval of her neighbors. But Jesus meets them where they are. He does not debate them or lecture them or berate them. Jesus has some prior knowledge about them, too. Uh, just before Jesus talked with Nicodemus, in John chapter 2, verse 24, the Bible says, But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that they should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. This is a blessing to us to understand, especially when it comes to the woman. Because he knew what she was. And see, he still must needs go to Samaria. He knew her mistakes or failures. He knew what kind of life and background she had. That had been uh, through men and, and, and uh, just had a mess in her background. And yet, uh, he loved enough to go through Samaria. Some of us may seek to avoid certain people or bad sinners. Jesus went out of his way to get to those people and to those sinners so he could change their life. Praise the Lord for that. Jesus didn't discriminate ever. In John 3, the person he encountered was a Jew. In John 4, she was a Samaritan. He was part of the right group. She was part of the wrong group. In John 3, the person was a man. In John 4, the person was a woman. In that day, men were privileged and teachers normally didn't even talk to women, but Jesus did. In John 3, the person was named. In John 4, the person was not named. She was simply the woman of Samaria. In John 3, the person had rank. In John 4, the person was a commoner. In John 3, the person was upright morally. 
In John 4, the person was very immoral. In John 3, the person was honored. In John 4, the person was an outcast. In John 3, the person was educated. In John 4, the person was uneducated. In John 3, the person sought Christ. In John 4, Christ sought the person. Yet both of them were ignorant about Jesus Christ. Both were dealt with individually. Both argued with the how. Both were told their need. And both involved a must. I'm telling you today, friends, that it is the goodness of Jesus that took him to both of them. It does not matter who they were. It doesn't matter their backgrounds. He talked to both of them. The glory of the gospel, my friend, is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Jesus will pursue you even if you have messed up uh, royally in your life uh, and morally. Jesus will receive you even if superiority over others has left you feeling empty. That is the goodness of Jesus. He loves you. He invites you to be born into his family. He wants to give you the living water so you'll never thirst again. And there's another thing, dear Christian, God forbid that we ever discriminate the gospel. Can I tell you something surprising here? In these two stories, here's Nicodemus. He's got everything going for him. He's got privilege. He's got tremendous Bible knowledge. By the way, he had to have the Pentateuch memorized as a child. Memorized. Can you do that by next week? Say, what's the Pentateuch? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That'd be something to memorize, wouldn't it? It's hard to memorize those five books. <laughs> the names of them, rather much what, less what's in them. He knew the Bible. He knew his word. He knew all these different things. The Samaritan woman has nothing to go for. She's at the bottom of the barrel in her life. Morally speaking, she's a disaster. She's got no religious background. We would think she was a rejected woman from a rejected people. Surely, he's the one that would respond to Jesus. She's the one that would reject him. But the reality turns out to be quite different. And that just shows us again, friends, we never ever can know whose heart is fertile and ready for the gospel. We just need to be faithful in giving it. The Samaritan woman makes no claim to know who Jesus is. Yet she's the one that ends up accepting him, uh, Jesus as the Messiah, and she is forgiven. Nicodemus is learned and intelligent. He's reluctant to accept Jesus as Messiah. Now, we know that later Nicodemus did get saved, became a follower of Christ, and that's a blessing. But at this point, uh, it took him a while. <coughs> we do not know. Can I tell you this? Don't miss this. If you go home with nothing else, let me give you this. We don't know who will accept the Lord Jesus Christ. But we do know who the Lord Jesus Christ will accept. Anybody who comes to him. Anybody who will put their faith and trust in him. He'll accept them. Thank God for the goodness of Jesus. Not only will he accept you in your current condition. He will pursue you to bring you into his family. There's a reason here, friend, that you're hearing this message right here today. Whether you're in the room right now or you're watching by video, there's a reason you're hearing this message. And let me tell you again, you must be born again. Have you been born again? If you have, praise the Lord. Let me ask you a question. If you have been born again, are you like Jesus faithfully telling the message to others? Because there are women at the well all over the place, even in Brookings. There are Nicodemuses all over the place. Seeped in religion, lost as a ball in high weeds. Law, not understanding the, why there's that void in their heart. Even though they're doing all these different things to satisfy their religious duties. Yet they're lost. 
Why? They need to be born again. That's what Jesus said to this religious leader. He said, you must be born again. Being religious will never do it for you, friend. You must be born again. All throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus go out of his way to reach people. And often it's individuals, even the maniac of Derek, cross the whole uh, lake there to get to one side to deal with one person. And he does that. You know what he, he'll do is he'll follow, uh, he'll go a long ways for you too. Even if you're, you're an individual, you have this need. You say, well, preacher, I've messed up. I've, I've got some moral failures in my background. So did the woman at the well. And he said, let me give you some water. <laughs> You'll never thirst again. He wants you in his family. Are you in his family? I hope so. And what are you doing to propagate that family? We want to bring, as we want to be there for those women at the well that need us. Amen. We need to have an answer for those religious people that are seeped in religion but don't have the don't have the Savior. We need to be there for them too. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed.